Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. So let's, as a church, read this parable together. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now as we look at this parable together, there's a few things I'd like you to know about parables. The first is that Jesus used parables to irritate people. He targeted specific groups or specific persons, and his teaching was intentionally to get under their skin. For example, uh, the prodigal son is known as Jesus' best parable, his, his most brilliant parable. And when you study that parable, you realize that the older brother is basically a picture of the Pharisees and the religious people and the self-righteous and and it is intended to portray them in a very negative way so that you will see that this is not honoring to the Lord, that this is not the response that the Lord is looking for. Well, in this parable, there is this unjust steward, or unfaithful steward. He's a dishonest manager. Well, I think in some ways you could say that Jesus is using this unfaithful steward, this bad manager, he's using it to tweak all of us who are moral perfectionists. To tweak all of us who think we do the right thing. We should therefore you know, have comfortable lives. Things should work out the way we believe they should work out. See, the more you are all about how you are righteous and you do the right things, the more this parable should get under your skin. Because Jesus says, learn from this man. And if any of us in this room are paying attention, we're like, this is the last man on earth that I want to learn from. He's dishonest, he's lazy, he's corrupt. Everything about him. And yet, here is our Master, the Lord Jesus, saying, learn from him. Now, if you read commentaries on this, there are plenty of commentators who say, this is the worst of Jesus' parables. Some of them even say he must have run out of good material because, because this one's really, really bad. But what if, in fact, 
as you look at this parable and you study it a little closely, you realize it's a brilliant parable. If you think about it, as we read it, didn't you see how brilliantly he told the parable? Not only do we have a sense of the, man, of the, the boss's heart, we have a sense of what was going on in the manager's mind. We see not only his actions, but his motives. And we see something here that should grab your attention. He went from being sacked to being promoted. Are you tracking with me? So, let's unpack this parable a little bit. First thing is, we realize the cheat is found out. You know, this guy who has skated on and along because of his charm or his affability, he's really quite a rascal. Okay? And so, his years of laziness, his corruption, his lack of faithfulness to his boss, they're discovered and he is about to be sacked. And what we see is somehow in the midst of that, there's this window of opportunity. I love what he says. I don't want to dig and I don't want to beg. <laughs> None of the rest of you feel that way? I'm with him, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting there going, yeah, I'm too old to dig and I really don't want to beg. I'm not good at it. So you look at this and you go, wow, okay, so he doesn't want to dig, he doesn't want to beg, but he only has a short window to make a difference. So it says he quickly calls in all his boss's clients, all of the ones who owe him money. And Jesus tells us about two of them. There's the one on Moses 100, he cuts it in half. The other owes a hundred, he cuts it by 20%. And so something happens as he's dealing with all these debtors that completely causes a buzz in the village or the town. Everybody now is talking about the boss. But now they're talking about the boss. Man, do you know how generous he was? He cut what I owed him 50%. He cut what I owed him 20%. So instead of firing this manager, now he commends him. He actually says, well, John, well done. I don't know if you're paying attention to Jesus' parables, but you got to at that point go, how can this be? How does it go from firing, maybe going to jail, to well, well done? Well, some of the, some of the people that, that try to wrestle with this parable say, well, Maybe what he did is he cut his own commission. Maybe what he did is he, he, he had always inflated the debt. He had always hidden his cost in with the debt so that 50% was his commission or the 20% was his commission. Now, if you think about this and, and why I reject that as, a, uh, as the reason, it's because if he was making that much money, he's making more than his boss. And the boss doesn't seem stupid. Maybe a little slow, but he's not stupid. And so, he would not have allowed his servant to get as rich as he is. He's the one risking the money. He's the one risking the resources. And so, he, he would have noticed that the servant was making as much or more than he was. So, what you see here is what I would call a lovable rascal. Now, maybe in New York there are no lovable rascals, all right? But in Mississippi, where I grew up, lots of lovable rascals. 
They talk real slow, take your wallet and go to New Jersey. <laughs> you underestimate them. You, you think because they're so slow they must be stupid and you're smart. And then you, they have your home, your property and your car and you didn't even know what happened. And I, it, there are a lot of people who have the ability to charm, they have the ability to win you over, and all the while, it's, it's pretty a counterfeit sincerity. And so this guy seems to be this really lovable rascal, and so what he knows how to do is to, get peop- is to use his connections. And what I think this, this parable is saying is that he made so much goodwill for his boss that his boss couldn't fire him. Because everybody was saying, man, this guy is so generous. This guy did this for us. Man, he is, just, he is the greatest guy. So if he fires the guy who caused that good report and those good feelings, then they're going to go, well, I guess he's not as generous as we thought. So now he has put himself in the position where the boss can't fire him. And the boss <laughs> realizes he's trapped. And he goes, well, that was a good job because you got me. Now think about this with me. This boss is a businessman. By the end of the day, he realizes he can't sack this man. All the clients, everyone in the town, they're all so happy with the situation. They're praising the boss for his generosity and his big heart. Now he can't fire the guy. What is Jesus teaching us about this? Well, let's start with who he intended to hear this. If you study Jesus' parables, you'll see that many times who he is speaking to is as important as what he's saying. Often he is in the company of religious people, or he's in the company of Pharisees or scribes or leaders in the religion. And so his, his teaching to them is very pointed about how they're missing the mark, how they're misunderstanding the will of God. Sometimes he's talking to a general crowd And with them, he's trying to reveal to them from everyday life truth so that they can understand spiritually what God is revealing to them. But in this case, it says right from the beginning, he was speaking to his disciples. In other words, these are his true followers. These are those who are already disciples. He's imparting to them, to these who believe in him, he's imparting to them wisdom and revelation for the journey of discipleship, for their walk with Christ. And so he's saying, what I'm sharing with you in this parable is not for public consumption. This is for those who really love me and who really hunger for me and who follow me. And here is basically what this parable is teaching. Sometimes those who live in this world live more wisely, more intentionally, more zealously, more productively than Jesus' followers. Are you hearing this? Hear it again. Maybe ten times. Just so you get it. Sometimes there are people in this world who live far more wisely, more intentionally, more zealously, more productively than Jesus' followers. See, all this manager had is he had his own wits, he had his own talent, he had his own resources, he had his own shrewdness, he had his own industry. That's all he had. And in many ways, if if you look at this carefully, you realize that he's a picture of modern man or modern people. 
You and I, we live in the most secular society that has ever existed. Basically, what's underneath everything that's going on around you is that you are all you have. And you are all that, that there is. That this life is ultimate. That there's nothing beyond this. There are no resources to call on. And for many people, whether they say it out loud or not, their ultimate value, their ultimate purpose is to be happy. And so many folks have believed the lie that if it's to be, it's up to me. And so here is this guy who is living that life, a life where he doesn't refer to God or to absolutes or moral standards beyond himself. The only standard he's interested in is keep from digging and keep from begging. He is a guy who has no view whatsoever of life after death. He just wants to cheat whatever's going on right now so that he stays secure, safe, and happy. He is a perfect picture of a modern person. But he should be in no way a picture of you because you, are, you do not belong to yourself. And you are never alone. The one that you follow has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has said, all authority belongs to me and I am with you always, even to the end of this age. He has made promises to you Things that, that are fleshed out in the apostles' teaching in their lives where the apostles Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He has said promises through these same apostles. My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, because you are united to Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And yet here is a guy who has none of those things and lives more productively than you do. More effectively. More intentionally. And Jesus is not speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to you and to me. And He's saying, learn from this guy. And what do, what do we learn from Him? Well, this manager realized that what he was going to do in this moment what he was going to do now, what he was going to do now, had everything to do with his future. See, he understood that what he had to do now, what the choices he had to make now, what the choices and decisions and actions that he had to take now would make, make or break his future. He didn't sit there going, woe is me, I never get a break. Woe is me, I'm going to get fired. Somebody else's fault. At that moment, he goes, what I do now will have everything to do with my future. Ken, are you hearing me? You know, you know, one of the things that this parable teaches, there is no such thing as fatalism. In other words, choices matter. I've been around people who are fatalistic in their, their thinking, even though they may not even be uh, uh, theist, or they may not believe in a God and whatsoever. As a matter of fact, some people have the Doris Day theology, que sera, sera, what will be, will be, kind of a thing. And they just live at the whims of fate. And they just, they, there's expectation of bad things. You ever notice how people say things like, this always happens to me. This never happens for me. Those are, those are eternal statements about temporary situations. When I was in Africa, 
I, I had this amazing experience with Muslims, and they knew was, we were Christians, but, and they were you know, strong and devoted Muslims, and, and it was fascinating to me the lack of hope that the Muslims had. This one guy was driving a, a double semi-truck, you know, one of those piggyback semis on the worst roads I'd ever seen in my life, and he was missing a lot of tires. And we were going to ride on that road. And I, was, I asked him, I said, Sir, how can you drive this huge truck on these roads with so few tires? And he goes, if Allah wills, I will die. I said, tell me where you're going to be so I won't die. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the idea Jesus, Jesus who is Creator, Lord, and Sovereign over this world says, your choice is now matter for your future. And Jesus says often that though we have all these resources, we have all His promise, we have His presence, we often fail to do what this manager did. We fail to realize that what we're doing now will cause everything that happens later. Now, let's think about what do we have as a secure future. And the Scripture says this, if you really are in Christ, if you really are a follower of Jesus Christ, then your future is secured and that future is eternal glory. And the question that this parable brings to our hearts and it brings to ever, the weakest believer in here to the greatest believer in here, and it brings this, and that is, how do I let this horizon of my eternal destiny begin to invade my present situation? How do I let the horizon that, that I have an eternity of glory? You might say to me, how do you know that I have an eternity of glory? Well, there, there are lots of reasons I know this. But let's just take, for example, in Romans 5, it says, having been justified by faith, I have peace with God. So now I have this, I have this relationship of peace with God. I have a satisfied relationship. I have a right standing with God. But in Romans 8, it says, having you know, experienced justification, you're justified. Then it says you're sanctified. And then it says you're glorified. And every one of those are past tense verbs. In other words, your security is a done deal. It's a reality in the present, though it is a horizon for your future. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if you could see yourself as you will be, you would fall down and worship yourself. Some of you stupidly worship yourselves now, but that's a whole other thing. But think about this, not only, friends, not only would you fall down and worship yourself, that believer who's sitting next to you has the same glory. How can we ever treat as nothing people who have the heaviness and the weight of the glory of God upon them? Well, in a way, what happens is you and I, we focus on our daily life instead of our eternal life. I mean, if you think about this, the Scripture says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you have received the free gift, the free gift is eternity. He has bound His life to your life. He has bound His weight to your weight. 
So instead of looking at things and saying, all I have are these, uh, this short life, these temporary afflictions, this small amount of resources, you are in the midst of the temporary with the eternal. You are in the midst of, of, of shortness of this life, but you are bound to the foreverness of God's life. He has a weight upon you. If you are truly His, there's a weight upon you of His glory that may make you bend but never break. As a matter of fact, you and I have, because of the righteousness of Christ, we have a palm tree anointing. Palm trees can bend all the way to the ground and the hurricanes can make them bend, but they do not make them break. They, they snap back as if they were never touched. And so when we begin to get this sense of we have a horizon and the horizon is eternal glory, then we look and say, why am I worried? Because worry is basically childishness on our part that says we have no horizon. Think about this with me. What is it with children and time? Children have no horizon when it comes to time. You put a child in time out for 10 minutes, for them it's an eternity in hell. You make them go an hour in the car to grandma's and they will torment you the whole way going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And so we give them things to dull their brains so that we don't have to have an eternity in hell with them. You see, that, that, what it is, is childishness means there's no horizon to the present circumstances. It, we act as if this is all there is. We act as if somehow we will never get through this, never realizing that we have a future and a hope that cannot be cut off. Now here's the problem with many of us. We've come to God not as our ultimate treasure. We've not come to Him because He's ultimate to us. We have come to Him as a means to our ends. And when you come to God as a means to your ends, you're asking Him to be your personal assistant, and He's the God who created the heavens and the earth. See, when you worry, what you're worrying about is ultimate to you. When you pray out of a place of worry, you're saying, God, be the ends to my be the means to my end. And God will not resource your idolatry. He will not assist your idols. He will stand against them. Now, some of you, the other thing that you could look at is the reality that many of us are liars and cheats. We're sincere in our ability to lie. And so what we're doing when we lie, when we cheat, when we get things in some unethical or illegal way is we're saying, I am my own Savior. You see, if Jesus is your Savior, then you have to live in the truth. Because it's only the truth that will set you free. But if you use lies to avoid punishment or you lies to get your, your own ends met, then you're saying, Jesus, you're not sufficient as a Savior. I have to save myself. You're saying, I have no horizon about future glory. I have to have it now. When we're angry and we refuse to give up our anger and we're bitter and we hold grudges and we're unforgiving, basically we're saying in that it doesn't matter what the future is. All that matters is the present. And in the present, I'm afraid, and anger makes me feel strong. In the present, I'm not going to trust 
in this horizon of future glory. I'm not going to connect myself to forever. I want it now. And you're in my way. And so I'm angry with you. So as we look at these things together, and you realize that the eternity that God has connected you to cannot be something that you buy. You can't buy into eternity. It's too heavy. It's too weighty. It's too forever. It has to be received. That's why that Scripture is so powerful in Romans where he says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only He can glorify you. Only He can take the, the remnants of the sins in your life and the, the destructive behaviors and all the things you're connected to that weigh you down. Only He can set you free from those things and He can destroy death and sin both in its power and its presence over you so that you are set free. It's not, it's not earned, friends. It's received. Now, having received it, what this parable teaches is that every detail of your present life has to be marked by the realization that you're destined for eternal glory. Having received this eternal life, having realized that you're connected, you're bound to the eternity of the life of God, having realized that you have weight that no one can take away from you, then you begin to realize that every single thing I do in the present must be marked by this realization that I am destined for eternal glory. Well, let me, let me unpack that a little bit. Are you tracking with me a little? Okay, Alan said a little. I'll take it. So if you take a look in the book of Revelation, it really unpacks in some ways this, the meaning or the, the force and the application of this parable. In the book of Revelation, you're given a lot of behind-the-scenes look at heaven. You see what life after death is like in many ways. And you see in the book of Revelation what the, the vision of the end of days and the end of this world will be like. But as you look at it, you'll see that there are those in the book of Revelation who are in Christ. They are those who will spend eternity in the presence of the Lord. And Revelation shows that they're going to populate a new heaven and a new earth that corresponds to this heaven and this earth that we are a part of. But when you see them in Revelation, they are always clothed in white. And what you see from that is the, 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 the white robe is a symbol of, of the status, a symbol of the connection that there is to the righteousness of God in Christ. In a, in a sense, what you see is this clear demarcation where they have taken off their old sin-stained robes. They've taken off their old guilt-ridden uh, selves and, and they have received a new robe, a robe of white. For some reason, spiritual chemistry, you have to have red to make white. There has to be the blood of the Lord Jesus to cleanse and to give that sin-stained freedom. From, from the past and the guilt and the shame. And so in the book of Revelation, you see that all of those who are called saints, all of those who are in the presence of God, they're wearing these white robes. But if you track all the way through the book, everything is headed towards one, one all-important event, and it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And for those of us who are disciples, for those of us who are believers, this is what everything is moving towards. It's moving towards the wedding feast of the bride of Christ with the bridegroom. It's moving towards this moment when you and I will forever be consummated as the bride of Christ and forever be in this awesome relationship in the presence of the one who gave himself for us. But something has changed in the garment when you see the wedding supper. The material is still white. It's still you know, shown to be given to them in terms of the robes of the righteousness of Christ. It's still shown that way. But yet the garments have now changed. And the way that I was taught to understand this and the way that I think you can see it is that no two people have exactly the same garment at the wedding feast. Everyone has an individual and a, and a unique garment. Now, in some ways, those of us who go to weddings understand this. My wife says to me, because we go to a lot of weddings, she goes, did I wear this dress at the wedding last month? You know, or does this dress look like somebody else's dress or whatever it is? So there's a sense in which we all want to look unique and different at the wedding. And so we want to have the proper clothing and dress for the wedding and all of this kind of thing. But that's nothing compared to what we will want at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because what I believe that Revelation and what I was taught that Revelation teaches is that each and every person's garment will be an expression of who that person has been in this life. Now listen. You are not working, you are not sacrificing, you are not giving so that you will get God's approval. You have His approval if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are loved as Christ. If you are in Christ, you are treated as Christ has been treated. You have His approval. And so you work because you have His approval, not to get His approval. But once you realize, and you realize what you've been given, and once you realize what you have in Christ, in this future and eternal glory that is yours in Christ, you begin to realize that your life is weaving a garment for the wedding feast. Everything that you have done to Christ, Everything that you have done in Christ, everything you've done with Christ, everything you've done for Christ is a thread, is a stitch, is a woven tapestry of your garment. We will all be known at the wedding feast by what we wear. It will be immediately apparent how you have served it will be immediately apparent how you have lived, what you have done with your sexuality, what you have done with your finances, what you have done with your mind and your time. I don't think Netflix will be sponsoring anything that day. But many of us spend more time making sure we don't waste you know, our Netflix time than we do making sure that we're weaving a garment worthy of the King of Kings. See, all who come to that table, and you, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the consummation of everything we've been looking for, that feast together. And it is there, when you come to that table, 
You will be clothed in white, but the secrets of your life will be woven into the garment. Nothing will be hidden. Nothing will be veiled. Now for some, this is going to be the most awesome thing because they have secretly been serving Christ. They've been serving the poor. They've been serving the needy. And nobody knows all that they have done because they've done it for Christ, not for themselves. And there are others who will think, well, my gown should be beautiful. My hat should be two feet tall. Only to find that all they have is just bare linen. Because everything they did, they did for themselves. They did for the praise of others. I guess the question that has come to me, at least from this parable, and thinking through what it means to be a faithful steward of all that the true master has given you is how will you be dressed on the day when you appear before the Lamb? Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, the people of this world, according to this parable, have a greater zeal about their destiny than the people of eternal destiny. See, if you, if you understand what Jesus is trying to get at here, a lot of people live for the future. But you have the right and you have the ability not just to live for the future. You, you can live from the future. It is already a reality. If you are in Christ, you will be glorified as, as Christ has been glorified. You will have, a, have an eternity where you have taken off what Paul says, mortality, and you will put on immortality. You will, you will no longer feel the effects of death. Not a tear that you've ever share, shed will have ever been wasted. But the question is, do you, have you come to that place like that servant where you realize that the choices you make today will influence and determine the destiny you have for tomorrow? Will you stand with me? I have two things I, I want you to do. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes with me. The first is this. You might be here this morning and, and the Spirit of the Lord might be touching your heart in a way like never before that you're realizing, you know what, I don't know if I'm a true follower of Jesus. I don't know if I've taken off the sin-stained clothes and... Now put on that robe. Today is the day He's offering you the robe. The wages, if you're going to live off your wages, the wages of your life, the wages of your sin is death. But today He offers a free gift. Free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ His Son. And I, I've seen in every service, the Lord Jesus Himself is asking, will you put on the robe? Now, you can't put the robe over your old dirty clothes. you got to put off and put on. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm asking everybody to help me with this. Let's, let's say that out loud together. Let's put off. Let's put on. I'll give you the words. You can make a decision. You can make this certain that this is the day that you're, you're putting on the white robe. Some of you, you know you have it on but you're going to help others today. Would you say this with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I put off the old clothes, my sin-stained clothes, 
my world-stained clothes. I put off my old self. And I put on Christ. Your death, your resurrection, your life, your obedience. I receive your robe of righteousness. Not my righteousness. Your righteousness. I know it sounds simple, but it's not easy. It's you, by faith, receiving what He's done for you. And then believing that you have the robe. That it's sufficient. Having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. Believing that. Believing it's for you. So here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like you to hold your hand up in a way of declaration. I want you to declare for the whole world to know, for the whole watching spiritual world realm to know. I want you to say this with me. I know it's my words, but you can make them your own. Jesus, you are my Savior, you are my sacrifice my substitute, my righteousness. You are my Lord, my leader, and my risen King. And I want you to do one more thing before we go. I know it's a lot of masking. Leave your worry here. Don't take it home with you. You can't carry it. It's too heavy. It's breaking you. Any unforgiveness that you have, any bitterness, leave it here. Jesus will carry it for you. Matter of fact, you leave it at the church. The cleaners will come clean it up tonight. It won't be here anymore. Any lies that you've told, falsehoods, any shrewd cunning, any of this stuff, would you make it known to God that you're going to stop this? I even have seen this, that some of you cannot handle your world, so you're dulling yourself with alcohol. You can't handle your stress, so you're dulling yourself with whatever will distract you, drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be, relationships, sex, whatever it is. And I... I'm asking you today to believe that you have a, a horizon that doesn't need those things. That there is eternal glory in your future. It is permanent. It is forever. It is weighty. It is heavy. And it's heavier than what you're afraid of. Would you leave it here? It may not be easy, but would you, would you look and say, I have a horizon. I have a future. I have a hope that none can cut off. Jesus spoke over His church and He said, I give to you an open door that none can close. Jesus spoke to His disciples in this parable and He said, do not let the world outzeal you. You have a garment to sew. You have a life to weave in together. This has always touched me in a deep way. I'm going I'm to give it to you to take. Everything 
after you go to heaven is sight. It will no longer be faith. This is your only chance to give God what really means a lot to God, and that's to live by faith. In the, in the coming age, you will live by sight. Only now can you give to Him your life by faith. I think He finds that completely precious. If it says in the Scripture, without faith it's impossible to please God, it must mean with faith it's possible to please God. And we're not talking about a minimal pleasure. We're talking about giving Him true satisfaction and pleasure. Would you put a stake in the ground right here? Leaving your worry, your lies, leaving your anger, leaving your unforgiveness, leaving your you're dulling yourself with substances and say, Lord, I choose to live towards the horizon of my eternal glory. I choose to live by faith. Faith says it is so, even when it's not so, until it is so, because God said so. Lord, we seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.